0: Section Zero of History of New England, Sixteen Thirty to Sixteen Forty Nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of New England, Sixteen Thirty to Sixteen Forty Nine by John Winthrop. Introduction The Journal of John Winthrop, founder of the colony of Massachusetts Bay in New England, recording the story of that colony during the first nineteen years of its existence must always have an interest not only for New England, but for America in general, and indeed for the world at large. Though a few Englishmen may have made a precarious lodgment on the New England coast before 1620, no proper settlements took place until December of that year, when the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth. Ten years later, in 1630, came Winthrop's company. After the lapse of another ten years, during which time the English in New England increased to about 20,000, the immigration suddenly ceased with the opening of the long parliament the grievances which had driven into exile so many of the nonconformists no longer pressed heavily for almost 200 years the new england stock received no further accretion from home and almost no new elements an isolated homogeneous population it multiplied largely within itself and began at the end of the 18th century to send its children westward footnote palfrey history of new england volume 1 preface in footnote What the 20,000 Puritan Englishmen and their descendants have accomplished is worth taking note of. Almost at once, dating from the early years of the settlement, a curious reaction set back from the New World across the Atlantic. New England became the leader of Old England. As the combat deepened between court and parliament, the New England way began more and more to prevail, and the New England way was independency. This, finding such promoters as Cromwell, Milton, and Vane, At last resulted in the Commonwealth, a political construction short-lived, but under which England was indeed a mighty and puissant nation. Footnote. J. Wingate Thornton, The Historical Relations of New England to the English Commonwealth, Boston, 1874. Charles Borgud, Rise of Modern Democracy in Old and New England, page 37. J. K. Hosmer, Young Sir Harry Vane, page 66 and following. In footnote as new england waxed in numbers her vigor and influence continued to be impressively manifest when a hundred years had passed the prenatal throes of the great federal republic were convulsing the thirteen colonies which now fringed the coast of the atlantic in this agitation new england had the initiative within her borders it was that a spirit of resistance to british encroachments upon freedom first awoke it was her sons who devised most of the methods through which resistance became effective and it was her soil which was first bloodstained when at last the clash took place. In establishing the United States, while Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Marshall, Hamilton are figures of supreme interest, the New Englanders James Otis, Franklin, Samuel, and John Adams were perhaps not less indispensable. Massachusetts, one of the 13, furnished probably more than one quarter of the fighting men. Footnote. For a summary of authority on which to base the claim for New England's initiative in our revolution, see J.K. Hosmer, Samuel Adams, page 11, at Sequiari, in footnote. In the civilized world in general during the century and a quarter that has followed our revolution, nations everywhere have accommodated themselves more and more to a democratic basis, footnote, J.K. Hosmer, Short History of Anglo-Saxon Freedom, chapters 18, in footnote, and in this vast and widespread reconstruction a live wire of influence may be traced back even to dynamos in the popularly governed communities that sprang out of the enterprise of winthrop and bradford nor is the vigour of the twenty thousand and their children yet spent it may be traced at the present moment in each one of the forty-six united states and in the world beyond in its ancient home Though, wave after wave of newcomers, Celtic, Latin, Slav, have within the past two generations overswept the English seed which the Mayflower and Arbella with their little consorts distributed, it is the old stock that is still in the forefront. Winthrop, Bradford, Adams, Quincy, Lowell, Hoare, Sherman, Savage, Saltonstall, Brewster, Elliot, Phillips, Brooks, Emerson, Hawthorne, Indicott, Winslow, Cushman, Higginson, and many more, are names in our own day, dominant often brilliantly distinguished in various ways the same names that are borne on the lists of men who shipped for new england when the star chamber and the high commissioned court were pressing with heavy hand a stock so persistent so virile so widely eminent claims attention in every period of its course and naturally a special interest attaches to its earliest american memorials the discovery and restoration to massachusetts of the long-lost journal of william bradford governor of plymouth was a matter of almost national rejoicing A reprint of this is included in the present series. Footnote. Bradford's History of Plymouth Plantation, edited by W.T. Davis, in footnote. Scarcely less treasured is the Journal of John Winthrop, Governor of Massachusetts Bay, a reprint of which is here introduced, and what of the man and his book. The Fortunes of the Winthrop Family, footnote. Robert C. Winthrop, Life and Letters of John Winthrop, C. Harding Firth, article. John Winthrop in Dictionary of National Biography, in footnote were established by adam winthrop whose life extended from 1498 to 1562 after a prosperous career as a clothier he was granted the freedom of the city of london in 1526 and after 1548 was permitted to write himself armier or esquire so attaining to the gentry in 1544 he had obtained the manor of groton in suffolk till then belonging to the monastery of bury st edmunds thus profiting as did so many englishmen high and low born from the dissolution of the monasteries a fine contemporary portrait presents a face marked by resolution and good sense surmounted by such a cap as often marks the portraits of the reformation period the figure below attired in a rich fur-trimmed overgarment his third son adam being educated as a lawyer reached responsibilities and distinctions that advanced the family for fifteen years from fifteen ninety four to sixteen o nine He was Auditor of St. John's and Trinity Colleges, Cambridge. Dying in sixteen twenty three, after being twice married, he left four daughters, their mother being a sister of Bishop John Still, and by a second wife, an only son, John, who became founder of the colony of Massachusetts Bay in New England. John Winthrop was born in fifteen eighty eight, his mother being Anne Brown, daughter of a well to do tradesman, through whom presumably the possessions of the Winthropes were enhanced. In boyhood, he was admitted to Trinity College, Cambridge, but his course was interrupted by a sudden marriage at the age of 17 with Mary Forth, an heiress, the mother of John Winthrop, Jr., governor of Connecticut, and other sons and daughters. Mary Winthrop died in 1615, whereupon Winthrop speedily married Tom Zane Clopton, who, surviving only a year, he took his third wife, Margaret Tyndale, daughter of Sir John Tyndale. This lady, though dying before her husband in 1647, Giving place to a fourth wife, is the mistress Winthrop whom we know best. Footnote Alice Morse Earle, Margaret Winthrop, 1895. J. Anderson, Margaret Tyndale, in Memorable Women of the Puritan Times, page 120 at Sequiari, 1862. End footnote. When John Winthrop thus in 1605 assumed, as we should say so prematurely, the responsibilities of a man, James I had been two years on the throne from the days of henry the the family at groton had been devoutly protestant a loyalty perhaps helped by the fact that a return of england to the ancient church would impair the title to their handsome estate as the church of england took shape with the sovereign at its head and the establishment of an elaborate hierarchy below no family was more zealous for the new order than the winthrop's from the old romanism they held strictly aloof and on the other hand they had nothing in common with the separatists the protestants who as the sixteenth century advanced dissatisfied with what they held to be the half-way reformation of the established church broke out from its fold in various extremes of belief far on in life john winthrop was destined to show sympathy with the ideas of robert brown one of the best known and perhaps least esteemed among the separatists the founder of certain independent congregations some of which were driven out of england for their refusal to submit to authority but in an earlier time while steadfast in their allegiance to the church of england it was with the so-called nonconformists that the winthropes ranged themselves the larger class who when the sovereigns and higher prelates sought to set up a ritualistic order akin to the ecclesiasticism which the country had forsaken declared for a ceremonial simpler and without romish taint from the family memorials which have been preserved to a remarkable extent we know that the elder adam winthrop though for the most part a man of affairs was intellectually active still more so was the second adam who while managing the business of the cambridge colleges yet was a profuse inditer of letters and diaries john winthrop carrying still farther the tradition became one of the most voluminous of writers letters journals and tracts and books following each other abundantly from his youth to the day of his death an atmosphere of stern puritanism pervades the memorials of grandfather father and son In particular, the letters of John Winthrop, even on the ordinary occasions of life, are so clouded by Calvinistic piety that it is hard to get, through the theologizing, the simple fact he desires to convey. Yet evidence is not wanting that the Winthrops in those early generations had plenty of worldly wisdom, steering shrewdly in the public turmoil, swelling the patrimony prudently by marriage ventures, and wasting nothing in unprofitable ventures. John Winthrop in private life was certainly an excellent husband, father, and householder, and as a citizen early obtained through good judgment, balance, and steadfast courage a wide influence among the Puritan gentry. Winthrop's plan for emigrating to America was not long entertained before it was carried out. In 1626 he became an attorney, and in 1628 a member of the Inner Temple, thus assuming positions which seemed to imply an intention of fixed residence. The earliest hint of his purpose to remove is conveyed in a letter to his wife of May fifteenth, sixteen 1629, in which his discontent with the condition of england is made plain with an intimation of his future course charles i had just dissolved parliament the antagonism between the high church and prerogative men on the one hand and those of a freer spirit on the other having become acute to earnest men of winthrop's views england was becoming a place no longer fit to dwell in he had passed into middle age and was bound by many ties to his native land but he now embarked upon an enterprise of the boldest as Winthrop here turns his face toward the New World, we must note briefly the facts of its exploration and settlement up to this time. Footnote. Palfrey. History of New England. Volume 1. In footnote. The basis of the English claim to rights in North America rested on the discoveries of Cabot. Since the French were equally well provided with the title through the voyage of Verrazzano, a contention arose not settled until the days of Pitt and Wolfe in the first years of the seventeenth century lived in southern england an active knight sir ferdinando gorges who though bearing a name of spanish or italian sound was nevertheless a thorough englishman in quality and birth associated with the earl of essex in elizabeth's time he drew upon himself and probably merited odium by letter testifying against him but he was persistent and courageous and after career against spain in the navy received the post of governor of plymouth gorges in connection with sir john popham chief justice of the king's bench brought into existence in 1606 the virginia company a corporation with a patent from the king which presently divided into two sections known as the lund company and the plymouth company set forth strenuously to possess the great territory the earliest result of the effort was jamestown founded in 1607 the attempts farther north were at first less successful a colony sent to the kennebec neighborhood by gorges and popham in 1607 disheartened by misfortune and winter's severities, had no success popham died but gorges continued indefatigable his enterprises followed each other never resulting in anything more than little groups of fishermen or traders clinging precariously to the coast as a century proceeded and in new england the strife arose between king and parliament sir ferdinando sided with the king the successes in new england colonization were won by the puritans but for many a year as winthrop's journal often evidences the enterprises of the old cavalier in maine and new hampshire disquieted the puritan plantations of the settlement of the mayflower pilgrims no account is required here footnote see bradford's history edited by w t davis in footnote in the years following their establishment in 1620 bradford's colonists ranged north and south making well known the coast of new england from manhattan where the dutch had fixed themselves in sixteen thirteen to the region of maine where they met the french from port royal and its outposts adventurers from plymouth or brought in by the ships which now frequented these waters settled around massachusetts bay thomas weston attempted a post at wessegusset now weymouth in sixteen twenty two thomas morton in sixteen twenty five was at marymount john oldham at hull or natascott william blackstone built a house on the peninsula of trimount as did thomas walford at mishawam now charlestown and samuel maverick at winnissimit now chelsea a few years after the mayflower's coming an enterprise more markedly puritan than before sought to gain a footing on cape ann its ruling spirit was john white minister of dorchester in england forsaking the bleak promontory for namkiag now salem and receiving reinforcements among whom john indicott in sixteen twenty eight and francis higginson in sixteen twenty nine were the leaders these planters were the immediate precursors of the settlement with which at present we have to deal the london company the part of the virginia company designed to exploit the southern field falling into difficulties and incurring the royal displeasure gorges and his friends obtained in sixteen twenty a new incorporation the council for new england Its membership was distinguished, and the territory which it was authorized to administer extended from sea to sea between the 40th and 48th parallels. In 1628, this Council for New England granted to Sir Henry Roswell, Sir John Young, Thomas Southcote, John Humphrey, John Endicott, and Simon Whitcomb, Massachusetts, a strip running from sea to sea with its northward limit three miles north of the Merrimack and its southward limit three miles south of the Charles that this grant became something more than a mere voluntary partnership without corporate powers is due especially to the agency of john white of dorchester he was zealous and widely influential among the puritans and it is attributed to him that the company having been more enlarged by royal charter a corporation was sanctioned under the title of the governor and the company of the massachusetts bay in new england the charter gave power forever to the freemen of the company to elect each year a governor deputy governor and eighteen assistants on the last wednesday of easter term and to make laws consistent with those of england four meetings were to be regularly held with provision also for special occasions the magistrates were empowered to administer the oaths of supremacy and allegiance new associates might be admitted and the corporation was empowered to defend itself against attack by sea or land as to religious liberty the charter has nothing to say Footnote the venerable document is still preserved in the office of the secretary of state in massachusetts the text is given in poor's charters and constitutions and elsewhere in footnote under this charter a new government was now organized april thirtieth sixteen sixteen twenty-nine. thirteen councillors were elected to hold office for a year of whom seven beside the governor were to be appointed by the company at home these eight were to appoint three others, and two remaining were to be elected by the old planters, the men on the spot, the pioneers of the colony. Matthew Cradock, a London merchant of repute, who appears later in the long parliament, being named as governor, instructs Indicott, who had gone over the previous year, and his agent, that the propagation of the gospel is, quote, the thing they do profess above all other aims, end quote. The colonists are to be carefully watched and restrained tobacco is to be cultivated only under severe restrictions massachusetts bay by which then understood boston harbor and its neighborhood is to be secured persons who may prove quote not conformable to their government end quote shall not be allowed to remain within the limits of their grant six vessels were now dispatched containing three hundred men eighty women and maids twenty-six children one hundred and forty head of cattle and forty goats with all needful furnishings and appliances Francis Higginson, the most interesting figure of this large and well-provided company, was a Cambridge scholar of Emmanuel College and later had been rector of the church in Leicestershire. Cotton Mather, writing in 1627, gives a tradition of Higginson which perhaps may be accepted. Footnote. Magnalia Christi Americana, Book 3, Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 12. In footnote. They sailed from the Isle of Wight about the 1st of May, 1629, and when they came to the land's end, Mr. Higginson calling up his children and other passengers to the stern of the ship to take their last sight of England, said, We will not say, as a separatists were we'll wont to say at their leaving of England, Farewell, Babylon, Farewell, Rome, but we will say, Farewell, dear England, Farewell, the Church of God in England, and all the Christian friends there. We do not go to New England as separatists from the Church of England, though we cannot but separate from the corruptions in it, but we go to practice the positive part of Church Reformation and propagate the gospel in America." End quote he concluded with a fervent prayer for the king and church and state in england and all the christian friends there the six ships though not sailing together all arrived in june and at once the plantation till then but an unorganized knot of adventurous people became established as a proper community steps were taken to form a church with samuel skelton for teacher and higginson for pastor footnote in important churches the heavy duty made two ministers necessary whose functions seemed to have differed little though one was called pastor and the other teacher see mr davis's note in bradford page 26 in footnote even thus early can be noted a drifting away from old moorings whereas higginson in his affectionate leave-taking just quoted disclaimed sympathy with the separatists and spoke with love of the church of england now the plymouth separatists were invited to the ordination bradford and other delegates taking pains to come though the plymouth men did not arrive in time to take part they gave their sanction to the ceremonies which showed a wide departure from church methods a laying on of hands and other forms of consecration more than foreshadowing the congregationalism that was about to prevail at once appeared disapproval of such departures from the old order the brothers john and samuel brown prominent among the councilors, took exception to the new religious methods setting up worship with the book of common prayer and leading a group faithful to the old church these men were promptly seized and sent back to England, Endicott being the leader, and here began the policy of intolerance, so marked a feature of early New England. Since the 17th century, the civilized world has come to see intoleration one of the first virtues of community. Their narrowness of the founders of New England has received heavy condemnation. It was a marked trait, and Winthrop's journal illustrates its prevalence in the record of each year. But the intolerance of our fourth authors has found apologists and authorities whom we must respect says palfrey quote religious intolerance is criminal whenever it is not necessary to the public safety it is simply self-defense whenever tolerance would be public ruin it is an idle casuistry which condemns the earlier comer and the stronger possessor for insisting on the unshared occupation of his right of his place of residence it is preposterous to maintain that the right to exclude is not his or that its exercise is not his bound in duty end quote footnote Pelfrey, Volume 1, page 300. See also H.M. Dexter, as to Roger Williams, and John A. Vinton, The Antinomian Controversy of 1637. For strong arraignments of the Puritans, see Peter Oliver, Puritan Commonwealth, and Brooks Adam, Emancipation of Massachusetts. See also an interesting passage in C.F. Adams, Three Episodes of Massachusetts History, Volume 1, page 248, and footnote of the early new england intolerance first plainly shown in the persecution of the browns and so often appearing during the period with which we have to do against antinomians Familists, baptists quakers catholics this may certainly be said that although unamiable repulsive indeed to the modern spirit it preserved the colony from being wiped out of existence the first enterprise after the plantation had been, so to speak, set on its feet after Higginson's arrival, was the dispatching of a party to survey and occupy Mishawam, now Charlestown, on Massachusetts Bay, an undertaking enjoined by the heads of the company, who feared a forestalling by Englishmen not of their company who might assert rights under a supposed patent issued to Gorges. Before the summer of sixteen twenty nine closed, therefore, the Salem men, for the Indian name of Nyamkeag was now exchanged for a Hebrew title, occupied a point on what is now Boston Harbor, which henceforth became the center of interest in the story of New England. Meantime, important events were taking place in England. The public trouble, becoming always more acute, caused many men to despair of England, and on August 26th, a company of such persons, possessing means and good position, meeting at Cambridge, resolved as follows. We will be ready in our persons, and with such of our several families that are to go with us, to embark for New England by the 1st of March next provided always that before the last of September next the whole government, together with a patent for the said plantation, to be first legally transferred. End quote. Footnote. Hutchinson Papers. Print Society. Edition 1. 28. The first suggestion of a transfer of the government and patent came from Matthew Cradock. Such a transference was pronounced legal by the lawyers consulted, though since that time the transformation of a license for a trading corporation into a charter for political establishment has been pronounced fraudulent and without color of the law. Footnote. Oliver, Puritan Commonwealth, page 19 at Sequiari. See Palfrey's argument and Citations, volume 1, page 306. In footnote. These twelve considerable men, of most of whom Winthrop's journal has much to record, were Sir Richard Saltonstall, Thomas Dudley, William Vassal, Nicholas West, John Winthrop, Kellan Brown. Isaac Johnson, John Humphrey, John Sharp, Increase, Noel, William Pinchon, and William Colburn. Footnote. Winthrop, Life and Letters, Volume 1, page 347. In Footnote. On September 19, 1629, Winthrop's presence on a committee at a court of the company is recorded, on which date, therefore, began his active part in the momentous undertaking. Winthrop writes, July 28, 1629, quote, My brother Downing and myself riding into Lincolnshire by Ellie, my horse fell under me in a bog in the fins, so I was almost to the waste and water, but the Lord preserved me from further danger. Blessed be his name. End quote. Footnote. I bid, volume 1, page 304. In footnote. Winthrop here had a narrow escape, perhaps from death, on the threshold of his New England service. Emmanuel Downing, his companion, we shall often encounter hereafter. The two rode out of Suffolk to meet at Simperingham, Isaac Johnson, son-in-law of the Earl of Lincoln. Another son-in-law was John Humphrey. Both men embarked in the New England experiment. This visit of Winthrop, which so nearly proved disastrous, had no doubt an important relation to his decision. On October 20th, at a court held at the House of Thomas Goff, Winthrop was elected governor, Humphrey deputy governor, and 18 other assistants. Humphrey's departure from England being delayed, Thomas Dudley became deputy governor in its place. Winthrop, now 42 years old, had gone through experiences to ripen him thoroughly. He had thrice married, had many children and grandchildren. He had a property of six or seven hundred pounds a day, perhaps equivalent to eight times as much at the present day. In administering this and in discharging the functions of the legal profession which he had followed many years, he had gained a wide knowledge of affairs and exhibited abilities which made him conspicuous. Footnote, Winthrop, Life and Letters, Volume 1, page 348. In footnote. All efforts were now bent toward the equipment and dispatch of an expedition such had never before left England for America. When things were ready, Reverend John Cotton, selected probably as being the most noted of the Nonconformist divines of the times, proceeded to Southampton to the assembling fleet and performed the same office, which had been performed ten years before by John Robinson, on the departure of the Plymouth Pilgrims from Delfshaven. Cotton's sermon, God's promise to his plantation, is still extant. Footnote. Old South Leaflet, Number 53, in footnote. Leaving Winthrop to tell the further story of the Massachusetts settlement, it is now in place to describe the venerable manuscript and the fortunes that have befallen it. The w- journal was contained in three notebooks, which appear to have been cared for after Winthrop's death in 1649 by his Connecticut descendants. The first notebook has no title, but the second and third were inscribed by him, Continuation of the History of New England. A misnomer, certainly, for of New England outside of Massachusetts Bay, it is a most imperfect account. The three manuscripts were in the hands of the older New England historians, William Hubbard Cotton Mather and Thomas Prince. In a revolutionary period, Governor Jonathan Trumbull of Connecticut became interested in the journal. But two notebooks, however, had come back to the Connecticut Winthrop's third manuscript for a time being lost. Governor Trumbull and his intelligent secretary, John Porter, Carefully deciphered and copied the two documents, and the transcript coming to the notice of Noah Webster, of dictionary fame, he caused it to be printed at Hartford in 1790, himself furnishing a short introduction and a few notes. The value of the journal was generally recognized, and much regret was felt that the work was incomplete. It was an occasion of rejoicing, therefore, when in 1816 the long-lost third book of the manuscript was discovered in the tower of the Old South Church in Boston its publication as an addition to the hartford book of 1790 was at once undertaken by the massachusetts historical society the work being committed to the editorship of james savage a young and zealous member savage was a man most accurate and indefatigable having transcribed the third notebook he proceeded to compare the 1790 publication with the first and second notebooks which it reproduced he found that the work of his predecessors though in general correct contained many minor inaccuracies He concluded that a new transcription of the two notebooks was necessary, and planned to supplement the text with an elaborate body of notes. The Massachusetts Historical Society having secured legislative aid, the work was vigorously prosecuted, and in 1825 to 1826 the entire journal appeared, profusely annotated, in two substantial well-printed volumes, entitled The History of New England from 1630 to 1649 by John Winthrop, Esquire, first governor of the colony to the Massachusetts Bay. The Winthrop of 1825 to 1826 took its place at once in the minds of men as the foundation of Massachusetts history, and the importance of the services of Savage was universally recognized. He became henceforth a man of mark, attained to the position of president of the Massachusetts Historical Society, and devoted himself to the genealogical and antiquarian work into which he had been led through his labors upon Winthrop. When, after twenty-five years, the edition of 1825 to 1826 was out of print, he revised his work making some additions to his notes and gave to the world in eighteen fifty three a new edition. this too after having served a most excellent purpose for more than half a century is out of print making necessary still another reproduction savage having long since passed greatly honored to his account the present editor with the approval of the general editor of the series has proceeded as follows first he has adopted without change the transcript of the text made by savage Careful tests of the accuracy of Savage's work here have been made, a comparison having been instituted in many parts between the original and the copy. It is plain that Savage was in the highest degree painstaking, and the examination renders it certain that the transcript cannot well be more correct. Savage, as many think unfortunately, modernized Winthrop's spelling and wrote out in full abbreviated words. It is desirable that the manuscript as it lies in the archives of the Massachusetts Historical Society should be carefully photographed. Some day perhaps it will be worthwhile to describe and reprint verbatim at literatum. As regards historical ends, however, Winthrop's record is satisfactorily rendered by Savage, and to make a new transcript is unnecessary. It must be said that the second notebook of the original, while in Savage's hands, was through ill luck in eighteen twenty five destroyed by fire. This portion of the record therefore is extant only in the copies secondly as to the annotation the work of savage has been replaced in the present repent by a scheme much more compendious and simple the former editor had peculiarities of character making him personally racy and interesting but impairing the excellency of his commentary his successor in the presidency of the massachusetts historical society mr charles francis adams aptly compares him to dr samuel johnson like johnson savage while most laborious scrupulously honest and always resolute and unshrinking was testy, prejudiced, and opinionated. He was prone to measure by small local standards. These peculiarities constantly appear in his notes, which are often in a high degree prolix, in some portions of the books largely exceeding in bulk the text. They are encumbered with genealogies of unimportant people and details as to trivial events in obscure localities. While possessed thus by the spirit of the county antiquarian rather than the broad temper of the proper historian, his hates and loves equally undiscriminating are curiously, often amusingly, manifest. He has his betes noires, like William Hubbard, Thomas Weldon, Cotton, Mather, whom he cannot mention without dealing a stout Johnsonian cuff, and also his favorites of whose shortcomings he was always blandly unconscious. It will be worthwhile some day to reprint the vast body of Savage's notes, not only because they are mine of learning, bearing often upon trifles, but often too upon important things, but also because the annotation has much interest as a human document, Pleasantly tart from the individuality of a quaintly provincial but sincere and vigorous mind. Footnote: In 1906, a fine bust of Savage was placed in the rooms of the Massachusetts Historical Society, on which occasion he was elaborately and happily characterized by the president, Mr. Charles Francis Adams. See Proceedings of the Society for that year. In footnote. In making the notes to the present edition, the point of view sought has been that of a student of history in a large sense. The Anglo-Saxon race is but one of the races of the world. The United States forms but one of the English-speaking nations. Massachusetts is one of 46 commonwealths, the story of each of which is an essential part of the story of our country. There are many other settlements upon our shores besides those made by Englishmen, and several other English settlements besides that guided by Winthrop, which have affected powerfully America and the world. Winthrop's journal is only one among a group of interesting records, An important one of the group but the incidents it relates must not be unduly magnified just proportioning must not be neglected in the perspective in the notes nothing more has been attempted than to make plain the language of the narrative to fill out the story when too meagerly related and to describe more at length the principal personages winthrop's work is rough and hurried he probably intended to base upon it an account more carefully written It needs to be supplemented, but the attempt has been made to do no more than is necessary to a clear understanding. The work of preparing this edition has been done in the Boston Public and Harvard Libraries, with some use also of the Boston Athenaeum, and especially of the original manuscripts in the archives of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Nearly all of the literature extant bearing upon the topic has been at hand. Winthrop and his circle left many letters and documents that are illuminative, which are contained in the appendix to Savage's edition, in Robert C. Winthrop, Life and Letters of John Winthrop, and in the collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society, 4th series, Volumes 5 and 7, 1863-1865, and 5th series, Volume 1, 1871. The manuscripts of the Winthrop family, extant to a remarkable degree, are also preserved by the Society. The Massachusetts colonial records, complete from the year 1630, the records of the First Church in Boston, and of the neighboring churches now in general printed, letters of Thomas Dudley and of other companions, Johnson's Wonder-Working Providence, Ward's Simple Cobbler of Agawam, Thomas Morton's New English Canaan, and the Narrative of Bradford, Governor of Plymouth, tracts and Sermons of John Cotton and other ministers, these and many more contemporary documents throw light on the time. Of the general histories of New England and Massachusetts written since Winthrop's time, may be mentioned as secondary authorities of more or less value. Hubbard, General History of New England, from 1620 to 1680, published about the latter date. Cotton Mather, Magnalia Christi Americana, 1702. Prince, Chronological History of New England, 1736. Hutchinson, History of Massachusetts Bay, 1764. Berry, History of Massachusetts, 1855. Palfrey, History of New England, 1858. Justin Winsor, Narrative and Critical History of America, Volume 3 and Memorial History of Boston, Volume 1. Special phases of Massachusetts history, including aspects of Winthrop's community, are treated in C.F. Adams, Three Episodes of Massachusetts History, 1892, Oliver, the Puritan Commonwealth, 1856, Brooks Adams, the Emancipation of Massachusetts, 1893, Ellis, the Puritan Age and Rule, 1888, M.C. Tyler, History of American Literature, Volume 1, 1887-1897, and J.A. Doyle, English in America, volume 2, 1887. The biographical dictionaries of John Eliot and William Allen, both published in 1809, and the genealogical dictionary of Savage, relating especially to New England, are valuable. All these have aided the present editor in his work. In the case of many notes, however, the information has been condensed from the learning of Savage, and sometimes his work has been quoted in full. James Kendall Hosmer end of section 0.